Stand with me to page four in the booklets. Uh, So we're reading God's word from the book of Romans, uh, chapter five, verses one to 11. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love to us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we now have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everybody. Um, My name's Richard, and uh, Peter told me to say, normally I'm upstairs and I don't get to hear the sermon, but I will hear it today. That's a joke. Okay. Um, we're back with Romans and looking at Paul's letter to the Romans. And just a little quick little background. He wrote this letter to the Roman, Roman church, which were going through a bit of a tough time. They were a bit divided along um, racial lines, Jewish-Gentile lines, and there's some sharp doctrinal disagreements. And so he wrote this letter to sort of encourage them to be united, to get together, to be together as one and to bind them back together again. He hadn't been there yet and he was hoping to get there one day but he sort of sent in this letter over to them and the reason for that too is he wanted Rome to be his base because he had this big ambition to go to Spain and to take the gospel into Spain so he sort of thought Rome would be the excellent launching point that I could go out into Spain and uh, bring the gospel. So for that to happen the church needed to be strong and united to support him. It was also written in around about 57 to 58 AD, smack bang in the middle of Nero's reign. And I don't have to say much more about that to know that, what that brings to mind, you know what Nero was like. So bear that in mind as, as you um, hear this and read through that passage. Um, it's a pretty cool passage. When I looked at it, I thought, this is a really great passage. And, and I was reading some background reading and, and you can almost hear Paul singing through this passage he's almost sort of shouting it out guys he says people just just check this out look at this what i've been saying is yeah we all have peace with god yep every one of us and guess what we can now live in his grace be filled with his love and we can face anything with unshakable joy and unshakable hope with amazing joy it's almost like he's bursting with guys come on so Let's go through it and and start at the beginning. Just a bit of context. What does he mean that we're justified? Paul says, believing in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, we we are justified. And so Paul uses the word we for the first time as well. So he's putting himself in, I'm including myself in with you guys. We're all, we are justified. It's like he's kind of summing up the first four chapters of his letter. Now justified is rather a big theological word and it means that just as if I'd never sinned. And uh, I, re- I remember a long time ago, an old preacher in Perth, we were living in Perth, and said it like this, it's like you're in a courtroom and you're standing before God and God opens up the book and says, oh, Richard, okay. Oh, look at all these charges. Hmm. Oh, sorry, Richard, but... And he reads through the charges and he's about to pronounce sentence and just at the last minute, Jesus steps in and says, hold it. Don't do anything. He's mine. He belongs to me. And God says, wow, okay. Rips out the page. Charges all gone. 
acquitted, declared not guilty. You're justified, just as if you'd never sinned. Jesus says, come on, come and join us. You're one of ours. And Paul says, that's what it is. You're justified. He says it in such a way that it's a once and for all historical act on God's behalf. It has everlasting blessings that he outlines then here. So he goes on to say, starting with being justified, here's the flow on. Here's what this means. Peace, joy, love, and hope. These are the blessings. These are the flow-ons from justification. And these are also the characteristics of what people who are justified look like. This is what they operate like. It's like Paul's linked them together in a chain. One leads to another with peace as a kind of foundation, as the link, as the, 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 the base from which all the others come out of. So let's look at peace. Paul's quite, we have peace with God. Paul's really definite. We have peace with God. Now, peace isn't something that, um, that's like a feeling, and it's something that, it isn't something we generate, but it is given to us from God through, his Jesus, through the work of Jesus on the cross. God did it all. This is a kind of thing that underpins everything in the passage. It's all God's initiative. He did it all. You look at chapter six to eight, uh, verses 6 to 8 in that chapter. It's all God's initiative. He did it while we were still sinners. While we were enemies, he says, God initiated it. He brought us, he gave us this peace. And we live in a culture where um, there's often a pursuit for, of peace. People are looking for peace in lots of different ways. But the reality uh, what people are looking for, I think, is a feeling. It's a subjective feeling. They're looking, they're endlessly searching for peace. And the reality is, for a lot of us, it's quite elusive at times. People are looking for it, but they can't find it. But I don't think Paul's meaning a feeling in this regard. I don't think he's looking at a feeling. He's talking here about a state, a state of being, where we stand. Paul says it's about where we stand with God. We're no longer enemies with God. But our relationship and position with God has been restored and he's making us into a new humanity that will join us in building his kingdom. I love that. God said, you're at peace with me and now I'm going to make you into a new person. You're a work in progress and the hope is that one day it'll be completed and you can trust in that hope. But what for? You're here to join with me in building a new kingdom. Jesus initiated it you're going to help work on continuing to build that in this earth. This new kingdom inaugurated by Jesus is here to renew, to rec- restore and reconcile. We're reconciled, made up with God. We're his people again, his treasured possession, ready to go and reconcile the world, to restore the world, to renew the world in lots of different ways. Now the piece here that I think he's talking about is that Hebrew word shalom. And it's a beautiful word. The peace, the Hebrew word shalom means wholeness of being and complete restoration to what we were created to be. A reinstatement of a relationship with God. That's that peace he's talking about. Because you've been justified, God has reinstated you to that relationship that he wants to have with you, to be his person, to be a new creation. And God's at work in your heart, in your life. It's a state of being, that's how we approach God. We can live, we can approach God every day with that in our hearts, with that knowledge, as we go about our daily lives as justified people and as Christians, when we believe in Jesus and what he did for us. Wow, does this mean we're going to live in a state of perpetual serenity? No. Sure, we will have times of calm and contentment in our lives, but we'll also have times of turmoil and disruption, confusion and pain and anxiety, suffering even, some of us more than others. Does this mean that we've lost that peace? Have we lost our peace with God when we're in that state? No, again. We still live in a world, a world that is dogged by the fall and its effects. Sin is still there. There is a, a sense in this whole passage of a now and a not yet. You are justified. You have peace with God. You're living in that state of restored relationship with God and you're a work in progress but hey there's still going to be some stuff happening in your life that's going to be yucky that's going to be unpeaceful that's going to be shaky that's going to really rock you but in those times remember stick with this you have peace with God God took that initiative and made made things right and you have been restored to a position of peace
So what do we do when we don't feel peaceful? We don't lose that peace, it's a fact, we never do that. What do we do when we're in trouble or suffering? Well, I went back to the Bible and looked at two, two passages that stuck out to me. Um, and later on I want to tell you a story about a guy who, who really got that and lived through some terrible times. But in Psalm 13 is one, and so it was preached on a couple of weeks ago. And I looked at the last verse of Psalm 13, and this guy's obviously have not having a, the psalmist David's not having a peaceful time, but he finishes it off by saying, But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, remember, and for he has been good to me. So the word stuck out to me. I will trust. My heart rejoices. I'll make a decision to rejoice. I will sing the Lord's praises. And I will, he doesn't say remember, but he remembers what God has done for me. I once had to do a little talk on this passage. And one, one thing I looked at in Psalm 13, it's like the psalmist is saying, I will go through all this tough time at the beginning, the first part of the psalm, and then I'll get to the end and I'll trust for, the, for he has been good to me. Even if nothing good happens from now on, I will rejoice because I know what you've done in my life already. That's going to be my hope I'm going to hold on to that and when we feel struggling when we feel unpeaceful or when our world's being rocked go back to that go back to the sense that God has justified you you have peace with him and remember what he has done and hold on to that and hope for the future and then in Psalm 73 classic I love that psalm psalm by Asaph and he gives this whole woe is me thing. Oh God, why? You know, I, I'm doing the good thing. I'm worshipping. I'm going to church, doing all that. And look at the ungodly. Look at they're thriving. They're, they're getting rich. They're prospering. What's the point? And then it says in the middle of the psalm, it says, But when I opened my eyes, when I drew near to you, you opened my eyes. When I got close to you, I got it. I could see. Yep. They might be going well for now, but they're on shaky ground. And when I first heard that psalm, it was when Alan Bond was at his height. Remember Alan Bond? He was at his height and then had a spectacular fall from grace. And it kind of like, whoa, that's like what he's talking about. You know, they're on slippery ground. You've placed them on slippery ground. So what did he do? It's when I drew near to God, I got close to him. In tough times, when we're struggling, when we're feeling unpeaceful, when our world is being shaken, we draw near to God, come close to his sanctuary, find a community of believers to get to close to, to get encouragement from, to be prayed for. When I tried to, he says in Psalm 73, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. And he sort of finishes on a really positive note. After having a whinge, now I'm, I'm good now. I'm going to tell everyone about you because I remembered what you've done in my life. The psalmist found peace in remembering and deliberately choosing to rejoice and trust God. And then Paul, in, um, he writes in Philippians, when he was writing to the Philippians in chapter 4, he writes about um, being in need or being content. And I thought this is a pretty, pretty good way, a good little application of this as well. This is what Paul said. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. It's kind of like, to me, it's like he learned how to cope in all sorts of different situations. And those situations would have taught him how to do that, but he chose a deliberate choice to go and to be content and to trust, I'd imagine, to trust in God and his promises. He learned to, be, to, to react not based on how he feels, but on what God has done in his life. And so the consequence was he could be content no matter what came across his way. So for us, to be ta for us a takeaway for today, well, we won't always feel at peace. But we know that our relationship with God is always at peace. It's rock solid. We have peace with God. The shalom that we, is what we can have even when we suffer or in, are in difficulties. And armed with that sense of peace, we discover that we work with God to build his kingdom. And that's the coolest thing. We get to build God's kingdom with him here on earth. 
wherever we are, in our workplace, in our community, in our family, we can restore, we can reclaim, and we can carry on the ministry of reconciliation in every aspect of our lives at work or at home. Find ways, little ways that we can do that to make things positive, to reclaim and restore and, and claim God's sovereignty in that way over those, those areas as well. But that's not all, as a famous um, ad said. And it's not steak knives. In 5 verse 2, there's a really cool image, and I love this. It says, we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And I thought, think of it like this. Imagine you've been asked to have an audience with the Queen. Right? So you get to go into the, uh, the palace. If you've been in there, it's a massive big building. And you have an audience with the Queen. And imagine you'd get in there, you'd have your little bit, and that'd be it. You'd go out, maybe after 10 minutes, you'd have the audience. And you'd go away feeling, yeah, wow, I had an audience with the Queen. How cool is that? You know, well. Paul says, you've been, you have access to the throne room of grace forever, all the time. Way better than access to the Queen. I think that's pretty cool. We have access to the, the, the grace of God. We stand in his throne room all the time. And one commentator I read said, it wasn't like we have the access. It's kind of like God or Jesus has introduced us into that. We didn't get that access ourselves. God brought us in. And that's a pretty amazing thing to think that we stand in our lives as justified people with a peace with God, always in that place of grace. We have access to God's grace. And I love that. John, John Stott says, um, justified believers enjoy a blessing far greater than an occasional audience with the king or the queen. We are privileged in the, temp- in the temple, in the palace. We have this constant access. And that's amazing. So that's, for me, so cool. So when we read these verses, when you look at that verse 2 of chapter 5, think about that. Wherever you go in your life, you have that access. But beware. Peace is constantly under threat too. There are niggles internally too that we have to cope with. Those inner voices that nag at us. You're not good enough. You're not Christian enough. You don't read your Bible. How You don't pray often enough. You're not worthy of being a Christian. Those little voices niggle and we all go through those little doubts or those niggles at times. But they're all lies. Remember 5 verse 1. We have been justified. That's a fact. But what Jesus has done, that's a fact. So we have peace with God. Nothing can take that away. We don't lose that. God gives us peace and shalom in our lives. He doesn't take it back. Those little internal nagging voices are, are of, the, of, of, the, of, the, the, of the world of darkness. They're trying to take us away. We need to, to pray against that and to say, no, I am because of Jesus, not because of what I do. And then verse 10 we were, even when we were God's enemies, God took the initiative and made the way open to be reconciled with him. God did it. We just accept it. We've been granted continuous grace. What a blessing. Whatever your life circumstances, you are at peace with God and you have access to his grace. Nothing can ever get in the way of that. You are beautiful and you are worthy. You are beloved, not because of anything you've done, but because of how you feel, or because of how you feel, but because what, is G- what Jesus has done for you. Do you believe that? Do you trust in that? Does that power you through your week and through all the difficult times in your life? The next blessing, so he talks about peace, then he goes on to joy. The next blessing coming is a sense of joy, of rejoicing. With this peace in our hearts, knowing we are reconciled and standing in this grace, we can rejoice. Paul talks a lot about joy in this passage. Rejoicing along with hope is a hallmark of a justified person, a sense of joy. Joy, Rejoice in the hope that we have, he says first. There is more to come. One day we will be completely free of the, the drag of sin in our lives. One day we will be all that God wants us to be. This is a powerful hope that gives us joy to live now. We know that this life where we, we, that this life where we even... Even though we are justified and at peace with God, we still suffer the effects of sin in our lives in many ways. And this life is not in the end, not the end. One day, Jesus will come back and take us into his glory forever. Romans 8 verse 17. It's like a shining light that keeps us going. 
one day we'll reach that place where we'll be free of all the things that drag us down in this life now. So Paul says that's a hope. Have joy in that hope. This is a now and a not yet moment. We live in the now. We're peace with God. We have grace. We have access to the grace. And we also live in a not yet moment. It's not completed yet. We've still got things to happen in our lives. We've still got a journey to go through. And then he says, rejoice even in sufferings and difficult times. Wait a minute. What does he mean here? Let's have a look at that. It's not suffering like my dog ran away last night or I stubbed my toe. Um, minor, as they minor daily frustrations and they're valid and they're legitimate but it's not the kind of suffering he's talking about here the suffering that he's talking about here has a couple of meanings and a few different commentators disagree on what it means but I think it means those really difficult tough times that we go through because we live in a sort of sinful and a fallen world bereavement, illness relationship breakdown failure in different ways sometimes life here on earth can be really cruel Sometimes we groan with the burden of it all, as the psalmists do. And as Job did, you think of Job in the Bible as well. We all, and also, um, sometimes we groan and we aren't perfect and we're dogged by sin ourselves and we groan with that. <sighs> I failed again, I did that again, I was told myself I wasn't going to do that. It's important to acknowledge that we do and we will suffer. And, and we will go through bad times. And I think, though, too, Paul, Paul here is also talking about, um, specifically about opposition and even persecution that comes as we follow Jesus' way and live as kingdom citizens. Now, the reason I say that is because he's writing to a group of Christians in Rome, and the Roman Christians would have known suffering. If you know a little bit of the history, and we talk now about that guy Nero that I talked about before, he was avowedly against Christians and did some terrible things towards uh, persecuting Christians and the thing that the, the Romans that stuck in their craw was the Christians dared to say that the, the emperor and Rome wasn't the ultimate authority they dared to say there was a bigger authority you can be a Christian in Roman Empire just make sure you acknowledge that the Roman emperor is God and the ultimate authority they had poets write about the, the Roman emperor they even had we, we read one because we went on a trip to Turkey and we read a, a poet a poem that Virgil, the poet, had written about the emperor, um, one of the emperors. You would have thought it was written about Jesus, the way that he talked about the emperor. He was a saviour. He'd come to save people from their sin. He's come to rescue and re redeem and all these sort of words that you use for, in Christian background. And they used that about the Roman emperor. So that was pretty tough for Christians. So the Romans couldn't tolerate that. So they would do what they can to get rid of the Christian faith and to, to, uh, to, to persecute them. Um, then Christians themselves had to sort of face this what do I do, this moral dilemmas all the time because there was constant sacrificing your constant state of, of, uh, of anxiety because have I done enough, have I sacrificed to this God Rome, uh, there, was, there was worship of Rome there was actually worship of Rome there was worship of the emperor then there was worship of the pantheon of gods. And then some of them worshipped Greek gods as well. And all of these needed animal sacrifices and stuff to be done. And you needed to be able to prove that you've worshipped the emperor and, and all this sort of stuff. And so it got pretty, pretty stressful. And for Christians, they had to navigate through that. In one place in Thyatira in Turkey, you had to be a member of a guild if you were a tradesman. And the only way you got work as a tradesman is through the guild. The problem with being a member of the guild is they sacrificed to idols. And they had massive parties, which were basically incredibly um, immoral orgies. And when you're a Christian, I can't do that. Sorry, you have to do, join in. If you don't do that, you're not a member of the, the guild. And if you don't be a member of the guild, you don't get work. And if you don't work, you don't eat. So how do you work through that? So they knew what suffering was. One of the things that Christians did was to work together and share together and work together as a community. You read about that in Acts, to get and share things together so they could support each other. So, for the Christians, they, they were in a, a, a state of persecution, which was very real. We maybe not as much, but there are times, there are challenges to the Christian faith in our culture as well. And it's increasingly so. The the privileged state that Christianity had in our culture is beginning to come under attack and not be that privileged position anymore. Suffering of any kind is a result of sin and is a reminder that we're in a, now, a not yet state. 
Suffering reminds us that the kingdom of darkness is still active in the world, but we're no longer in that kingdom. By faith, we have peace with God and we've been transferred into the kingdom of grace. So suffering's part of the, the, the darkness and we go through that where we're affected by it, but remember where we stand. We don't stand in the kingdom of darkness, we stand in the kingdom of grace. We're at peace with God and that gives us encouragement. Paul says, have joy, remember that. Remember where you stand. So even in your suffering, you can rejoice. We're literally being made into a new humanity that will join him in building his kingdom. So Paul says, choose an attitude of rejoicing. We have a choice to despair and doubt in God's promises or look up and be confident in God's promises and even rejoice. He doesn't mean adopting a stoic, stiff upper lip attitude. And he doesn't mean rejoicing in a sick, masochistic way. But realize that God is at work in you and in your suffering. And trust him. You can have down times, you can have sad times. But look to trust God and find people who will support you and strengthen you, pray for you and help you walk through that difficult time. Suffering has benefits, says Paul, and I just thought I'd highlight three of them. First, it's the way to glory. Jesus suffered. He had to suffer, and it was his way to glory. So as Christians and as justified people, we will suffer for our faith to on our way to ultimate glory. Jesus often referred to this kind of suffering as something that we should expect. In Romans 8, verse 17, it refers to that as well. In Matthew 5, 11 to 12, he talks about that. Blessed are you when people persecute you and you suffer for all kinds of sake. And it goes on. Suffering produces endurance as well. Suffering produces perseverance, he says. It makes you stronger and it produces character, which in the end ends up in hope. So many examples here that I could share, but I'd like to share a story at the end that I, um, if there is time. But think of how the church first grew. It was under suffering, under persecution. People were persecuted, they left, and they found new places to grow and to, to spread the faith. And that's how Christianity grew. The first Christians fled Rome and they held on to the hope that they had. That persecution didn't extinguish the hope or the peace. They took that with them and after they went to spread the gospel. The church today in nations all around where there is often severe persecution is growing. I once saw some figures on the underground church in China, and this was a long time ago. There were 54 million Christians. And I remember thinking, that's more than double the Australian population. And there's just the underground church. And that's what we know of. So that's incredible. There must be, there must be endurance and perseverance for people to grow like that under persecution. Paul says suffering matures us and helps us to learn endurance. It's a choice that we can make to use that to help us to grow strong based on the fact that we have peace with God. There's a principle of life as well, especially in the sporting arena. Think of the phrase, no pain, no gain. One commentator read it, we could not learn endurance without suffering because without suffering there would be nothing to endure. He's right, it's John Stott. This endurance or perseverance matures our character. How often do we say that a tough time is character building? And that's what Paul's referring to. It helps us to grow in our character. And it drives us to remember again who, who we belong to. We belong to God. We're at peace with him. It deepens our trust. How often have you heard someone say that they've grown closer to God in their time of grief or illness? I have. And, and I haven't had that experience, but I've heard others say that. So we don't want to shun suffering. We are to rejoice in the middle of it. because we love, Not because we love pain but because we know who we belong to and what, work, and what work this suffering is achieving in us if we allow it to. We know that God is always with us in our suffering. We stand in peace and in his grace. Paul says the end result of it all is hope. So perseverance produces character, produces hope. Hope is a bit like a muscle and if you don't use a muscle, it wastes away. So use that suffering, that time of suffering, to grow your, and mature in your character and to grow hope. Suffering ultimately strengthens our hope in God and our place in his new kingdom. Hope is that part of the chain of blessings that Paul Call is talking about. In suffering, we hope for the time to come when we will no longer have this suffering. We live in the now, but we hope for the not yet. 
So in our time of suffering, it, it drives us on to thinking, yep, one day it will be, we'll be free of all this. Hold on. We know that God hasn't deserted us. In fact, he's working in us in our suffering. And that gives us hope as it reminds us God cares and is constantly restoring us. He's walking, walking through our pain with us and never abandons us in our dark times. Romans, 28, uh, Romans 8 verse 28 to 39 powerfully drives us home. God is with us. He doesn't waste any of our opportunities, that we, any, any experiences we go through. He uses all to, to help build us up and strengthen us. And this hope is not an illusion. This hope is fair income. Paul says this hope will not disappoint us. How do we know? Because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Because the love of God has been poured into our hearts. In verse 5 he says, verse 5, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We can choose to be strong in that time of suffering because the Holy Spirit is within us and God has poured his love through the Holy Spirit into our hearts. The word here that he uses is quite extravagant, pouring his love down like a torrent into our hearts. It's like life-giving rain pouring onto parched ground, not just once but wave after wave after wave and throughout our lives more and more of that love is poured into our lives. It's a continuous outpouring. The Holy Spirit, which Paul says in this verse, is given to all believers when we believe, makes us deeply and refreshingly aware that God loves us. That's how we can hold on. That's how we can hope. That's how we can grow and mature in our suffering. Suffering helps us to be aware of God's love and love more and more and helps us to be more and more assured of, that God's love has filled us to overflowing. Then as if to remind us of God's love, we have verses 6 to 8. God loves us, Paul says. Prove it. Well, Christ died for us because he loves us. And it's like he says in capital letters, while we were still sinners. That's how much God loves us. While we were powerless. Now, for the, for the Greco-Roman culture, this was shocking. I mean, their, their relationship to the gods was very much of an appeasing one. I've got to do heaps because that God's always angry and I've got to keep making him happy by giving him sacrifices. You're telling, you're telling me about a God that actually does the opposite and gives his son and, and reaches out to the people? That's, that's shocking. So it was quite astounding for the Greco-Romans to, to hear that. No God would do that. In fact, their gods are always angry. So this time the Christians had a, a different message. This God reached out and Paul says... He loves us so much. While we were enemies of God, he came to us and made a way open for us to be at peace with him and have grace to stand in that beautiful throne of grace. So in suffering, we have a choice to endure and grow in our faith and hope under it or let it overwhelm us. The Roman Christians, just as any other Christians in the Roman Empire at the time, would have known what this was all about. When we're suffering in whatever way, and we will suffer, we will go through tough times, we do have a choice. God loves us so much. He sent his son so that we could be at peace with him. He introduced us into his grace. And he won't leave us alone in our suffering. God is walking with us in our pain and suffering. He hasn't left you alone. Remember, you're at peace. Your relationship with him has been restored. He's not just going to turn his back when you're in suffering. He will walk through you, through that suffering with you. Remember Psalm 13 and Psalm 73. These guys knew that and they turned to God, they drew close to God and that's where they found that strength to get through. Practically, we can share, it, share, share our suffering and how do we do that practically? We can share our suffering with people. Sometimes it's good to share when you're going through a tough time. Find people that you can, who can pray with you. We can pray for those people who are suffering. Think about the brothers and sisters in, our brothers and sisters in persecuted churches. Just this week I got an email from Open Doors and it was really curious because the Christians in Egypt were saying, pray for us, but don't pray for us, pray with us. Because when you pray for us, you're going to pray for the wrong thing. What? Well, when you pray for us, the Egyptian Christians say, you'll pray that suffering or the persecution will stop. Blah, blah, blah. We don't want that to happen. 
They understood that persecution made them stronger. And they lived, they thrived under that. Pray instead, and it says in the email, if you pray for us, you will pray for the wrong thing, the pastor said. You will pray that the church will be safe. You will pray for persecution to cease. We are not praying for these things in Egypt. We ask God for the salvation of Egypt. We ask that he will draw Muslims to Christ. We ask that he will be, we will be bold and clear in sharing our faith with our brothers and sisters. And we pray that when the inevitable persecution comes, we will not run away, that we will be faithful in that persecution, even if it costs us our lives. Will you tell your friends to pray these prayers with us? This is what he's saying to us, the Egyptian Christians. Don't pray for persecution to go away. Pray for us to have the strength to, 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 to withstand it. And in that, to reach out to our Muslim brothers and sisters and our government. That's pretty encouraging. What's that we can do? I read that because I've been praying a lot. We've been supporting Open Doors. And someone said, when, don't discount praying for your brothers and sisters in persecuted countries. Because it's like when they know that people in Australia or America, wherever, are praying for them, it gives them inc- incredible courage. I mean, sure, you can donate money to help them, but praying for them is important because it, it encourages them. We avoid when, we, when, when, when uh, practically when we're, people are suffering, we avoid saying patronising Christian things that we can often say. We do walk with them sometimes in silence and um, walking along with someone in their suffering without saying something is probably more important than trying to say some Christian thing to make them feel better. Because often we say the wrong thing. One other thing that I, I read years ago when people are in a time of grief or in suffering is to help them with the basic practicalities. I read the story. It was a Reader's Digest story, so one of those little funny little stories. But a family had this lost a child um, tragically. And their, their good friend, they didn't know how to respond. And they thought they could make a meal or whatever. So they, they decided to go over to the house and just see what they could do. And in the, in, the, in the porch were all these shoes that needed polishing. So she said, I just went in, grabbed the shoes, didn't say anything, and polished the shoes and made them all ready for the kids, for the, for the family, for work for the next day. A practical little thing. She didn't have to say anything. She just went and did it. Sometimes when people are in times of suffering, we, we know them well enough to be able to do that practical little thing that will make their life a bit happier and better. So that's what we can look for. Finally, we come to the end game, hope. The final blessing and the culmination of this passage, justified people at peace with God and rejoicing no matter what life throws up, look forward with hope. They are blessed with hope. They are characterised by steadfast hope. We look forward and we hope to our completion as a new humanity. We don't need to fear God's wrath anymore. He talks about that. If God, Jesus reconciled us, how much more will he save us from God's wrath? I mean, that was a curious passage. What it means is that even though we've been reconciled, we, we'll still sin, we'll still fall, we'll still do the wrong thing. We've been saved from God's wrath even for those sins because we're going to be made whole. God has taken us into his, into his peace, into his grace and make us whole. We won't suffer the, the, the wrath for our, for our sins. If we struggle with sin, we sometimes, well, we need not fear God's wrath because we have hope as a blessing within us, which assures us that one day we'll be free of the drag of sin affecting all we do. This hope is based on the fact that God took all the initiative in reconciling and justifying us. He did it all through Jesus' blood. We didn't contribute a thing to it. He brought us to himself and restores our relationship with him. He brought us into his throne room of grace. It was all his initiative. He did this while we were sinful, while we were still powerless, while we were even enemies. Our backs were turned to God, as Paul says in verse 9 and 10. If he did all of this to restore us to himself, if he did all of that when we were enemies and we were powerless and we were sinful, how much more will he not finish it off at the end? If he did put all this effort into sending his son, he's going to finish it off, says Paul. He'll, he'll complete it. How much more, that little phrase he uses. So what does that mean for us today? We see ourselves as works in progress. We're on the way. We have that light of hope at the end, but we're also living in the now. We're at peace with God. We're standing in this grace. Each experience in life 
as part of our journey in becoming is part of our journey in becoming more and more like God wants us to be. We can use even suffering to help us to grow to be like the people God wants us to be. 5 verse 11 caps off the passage. Rejoice in God. Not only in this is this so, but we also boast in God or rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So Paul says, rejoice in the fact that you belong to God. Rejoice. In some translations it says boast or exalt. We rejoice because God... Christ died for us. We rejoiced because we had no claim. We had no claim on him, yet he loved us and made us right with him. We rejoiced because we belong to him and he doesn't belong to us. That's a pretty important thing. We belong to God, not him to us. We rejoice because we know there is a bigger picture that we're a part of. God's new kingdom. And we are a part of building that. Now already in Merry Creek, in, in the inner north, in Clifton Hill, in your workplace, you're a part of building that kingdom, making a difference in your area, reclaiming, restoring, renewing. We rejoice because we have a certain hope that one day God's work will be complete in us. I want to click quickly, if I've got time, to share the story I was talking about before. I became a Christian, I reckon, because of this book. Now, I grew up in a Christian family, but I still remember a time when I had to make that decision, following my parents or make it my own. And I realised at that time that I needed to kind of like cut the apron strings, going to church with my mum and dad, but I needed to stand up in front of people and say, this is what I believe, not just because of my parents. And the story was about a, a, a Dutch minister. It's called Faith and Victory in Dachau. Powerful book. But what impressed me was the way that this guy handled stuff. And it was in the war. He was a, a minister and um, he was preaching a sermon. And he knew when he wrote the sermon, he showed his wife the night before and his wife said, if you preach that sermon, you will be arrested. Why? It was 1940, 1942, whatever. the Nazis had occupied Holland. And the way that the Nazis did that, they, because they treated the Dutch more as almost fellow countrymen because there's a similarity in language and stuff like that that they um they didn't dominate sort of in a way that was the brutal way that they done in other ways but they tried to change people's hearts and minds and one way they did that was to take control of the schools now for the dutch particularly in holland there's a lot of christian schools that were parent controlled and they valued very much this whole concept of god has given us our children it's up to us how we educate them so suddenly all these photos of hitler had began appearing in all the classrooms and they had to teach the kids about about the, the third reich and how it was going to make life better and so on and people were, were not happy about that and they started working they went to him and said what do we do and he he, he his attitude was Keep the peace, don't rock the boat too much. But then finally, he said this. He realised, he's telling people, I have to be an example. If he would advise them to endure hardness as a good soldier of Christ, he must show them the way. So on the morning of February the 8th, 1941, he preached from Matthew 5, verse 11 to 12. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so men persecuted the prophets who were before you. He said, I need to actually live that myself. If I'm going to tell the people to stand up under the pressure, I've got to do it. So he wrote his sermon, sermon on that. And part of the sermon was he said that Christian parents, children belong to their parents. No body, no state, no government can tell your parent and the parents what to do with them. Only Christ has a right to them. No one has a right to rob us of our children. God has entrusted them to us, and we as parents are responsible for their children, for their nurture. For these parents to support a school that is no longer a Christian school controlled by parents and to send their children here, better for them to tremble before the word of the Lord than before the word of man, no matter how powerful that man may be. So that was his sermon. Stand up, be strong, trust in Christ. Don't let the state tell you what to do. Just as he was about to start, he says in his book, he noticed in the back of the church two very interesting-looking men snuck in and sat in the back. He knew straight away who they were. They were Gestapo agents. Bear in mind, too, that there were a lot of Dutch people who decided to support the, the Nazi regime to sort of to get through so they would uh, be free of any pers persecution themselves. So they, they sort of 
joined in. But these were two Gestapo agents. And he said in his book, it's not written here, but in his book he said, at that moment I had an opportunity to change my sermon just a little bit so that I wouldn't get arrested. I could have just not preached bits of it and it would have been okay. But he said, I can't do that. Because he knew, he trusted in God and he knew he had to give this word. So he closed the service, sang a hymn, and he was arrested. He was straight away taken to a, a jail in, in Arnhem, where he was. And he wrote, But the word of God is not bound. I could always bring the word to unbelievers and to believers, to fellow prisoners and to Gestapo police. While he was in there, he was aware that there was lots of other people there who were crying out and really scared and worried about what was going to happen to them. And he chose in that time to reach out to them instead of wallowing in his own self-pity. So he said, I've got an opportunity to, to preach. So he spoke to people. He prayed with people in that prison and continued on. From there, he went to The Hague. And each time he went to the next prison, it was harder and more difficult. Um, he was locked up again. And instead of wallowing in self-pity, he occupied himself with ministering to the fellow inmates, prison guards as well. Whenever he got an audience, he preached. Cast your cares upon him, for he cares for you. And other at other times, single prisoners would come to him for advice. So he kept doing that. Throughout the book, it's characterized by that he never let himself get dragged down. He never, he never said, God, bring down fire and rain on those soldiers or those prison guards and get rid of them. No, he never did that. He always looked for an opportunity to share the gospel and to preach. He, suff he suffered bad. Um, he ended up from The Hague, he went to um, an Amersfoort, which is another prison camp, and eventually he ended up in Dachau. Dachau prison camp was so bad that the Catholics used to pray, Dear Jesus, make me good now so I don't end up in Dachau. Um, and there was also a saying, Only death brings freedom in Dachau. He went from 74 kilograms, that's what he weighed, to by the time he was in Dachau, he was 35 kilograms. He lost more than half his weight. So, and you read in the book how the, the treatment, like his legs were swollen up with liquid and, and it was terrible malnutrition. Yet all the time, he kept looking for ways to make, win other people. He, he, he saw other people, he could bring them to the Lord, he could tell them about the gospel. And many became to, became, came to trust him in that camp. And uh, his character verse, uh, verse was, my grace is sufficient for you. And that struck me. Here's a guy that worked through incredible suffering, but remembered who he was, remembered whose he was. He was at peace with God, and he knew that there was a hope that one day he would be free of the suffering, whatever, wherever it was. Finally, after months in Dachau, he realized he wasn't going to get out, and he was resigning himself to, to suffering, uh, to dying. He was getting ready to die because he was getting so sick. And then suddenly, strangely, a letter came from his wife. And this letter, his wife wrote to him. It got through somehow, said to his church, had been praying for him. There were three prayer meetings on his behalf. So that gave him a bit of encouragement. It revived his spirit, if not his physical life. The fact that people were praying for him made him liven up again. And that sort of impressed me. What can we do? Our prayers are so important for people who are struggling. Then God moved in a mysterious way. The commandant of the camp changed and there was a new commandant and this commandant was much friendlier. He allowed church services. He allowed them to have a Bible and the food improved. Things happened. And then finally one day he was actually released, strangely. Um, and he went back to his, uh, he was given his clothes and went back to his, his um, family. That story really struck me and it never ever left me. He was able to endure incredible pain and suffering and yet still maintain an attitude of peace and love and hope and endurance through all of that. And at the time I read this book, there was, it, was a, it was the era of miniseries. There was Roots, one of the first ones. The miniseries of Roots was in the 70s. And then there was one called um, The Holocaust. And it was all about the, the, the Jews in the war. And, but the attitude of that was very revengeful. And it was, very, it was a complete opposite to this. And I can remember thinking, wow, what a contrast. And that really struck me. I want what he's got. I want to be what he has, to have that positive, that, that attitude in, in the midst of pain and suffering. So, 
to finish off, let's go out this week. Let's love others with a never-ending love that God has poured into our lives. That image of the pouring out love into our lives, it's overflowing, but that doesn't mean we just keep it. We've got to share it out. Share that love with others through the Holy Spirit. Let's go out and show this week who he is. Let's show his love and his grace by the way that we handle ourselves in all sorts of situations. Let's be attractive as a community of Christians here at Mary Creek by our humility, by our love, by our compassion, and by our hope and our sense of peace. Let's be the new humanity God is creating by reclaiming, restoring, and renewing our world in in the big and little things in our lives. Let's find ways to walk with those who are suffering. Walk in different ways with those who are suffering, committing to pray for someone who is struggling, supporting our brothers and sisters in places where it's dangerous or even deadly to be a Christian. And let's remember what God has done in our lives. Let's draw near to God, find a community of Christians that we can get along with and and share with. And let's trust, let's read his word, let's pray and seek fellowship with other believers. And in that way, remember what God has done for us. Remember the peace he has given us. And remember that we have a hope that one day we will be completed as his new creation. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have blessed us with an incredible sense of peace. We thank you that you have justified us and made us right with you and that we now have a relationship with you that cannot be broken or taken away. Thank you, Lord, that we also stand in your grace, that you you introduced us into your grace and that we can access that, we can use that, we can have that grace whenever we need to. It's no longer just an hour's audience with the Queen, but we have constant audience with you. And we thank you for that. We thank you, Lord, that we can also trust you to help us through times of difficulty. And we know that they will happen. Help us, Lord, to trust you, to hold on to the promises you've given us, to remember that we are at peace with you and we have love and hope in our hearts. Guide us, Lord, as we go from this place and help us, Lord, to be your new creation, your new humanity, redeeming and reconciling this world. In Jesus' name, amen.